So Israel is now ready to enter the land. They have wandered through the wilderness for 38 years, and they're coming up on the 40th year. And part of that year is going to be the book of Deuteronomy when they're teaching their lessons. And so they're in the Sinai Peninsula. They've made their way up to Kadesh Barnea. And now they need to travel up the eastern side of the Jordan River in order to enter the Promised Land. This requires them to go through Edom and Moab. Um, and the Ammonites are far enough east that they can go towards the Jordan River and never touch the Ammonites. But they do not have to go through Edom and Moab. They can walk really far out of their way towards the east and go through the desert around them, but that's really, really, really inconvenient. They prefer to go through. Remember, one of the reasons that God is bringing them up through the east, for God, Israel is the Garden of Eden, so to speak. Not in that perfect, unfallen state kind of a sense where he's dwelling there, but remember, he's recreating the Garden of Eden. The whole Bible is about getting back to what was lost in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was set up in a certain way. The Garden of Eden had a tree of life that produced fruit and life for them, where humans and God both dwell. And in the eastern side was the gate. And we know that because they exited towards the east to get out of the Garden of Eden when they were kicked out. And in front of the gate were two cherubim put there as guards. So when God creates the tabernacle, he creates the same thing. He creates a garden once again with a gate on the eastern side. And that gate is guarded by two cherubim, not literally, but the fact that they're stitched into the front of the gate. And there he puts his presence, the Shekinah glory of God dwelling with them. The priests represent the image of God and the fact that he creates a lampstand that looks like the tree of life with the almond branches and all that kind of stuff. And then that light shines onto the table of showbread. The table of showbread is like the fruit of the tree. And so once again, God is putting the life in the garden with the fruit that it produces to provide for every single need that the priests need and that table of showbread with 12 bread loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's the banquet table of God. We're all invited to eat at, and then he dwells there. He's creating that in a small sense. He does the same thing with Israel. With Israel, you have the gate. So the Dead Sea in the south and the Sea of Galilee in the north represent the two entrances of the gate. The Jordan River is the entrance through the land, coming, going west to get in, going east to leave. And so in the same sense, he tells you that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. That if he's in there, you're obedient, he'll send the rains, and you're going to be incredibly blessed with everything that you would ever need. And he says, as he puts the tabernacle there, it's, this is where he has put his name. And name means character. So God says he's going to dwell with them. And this is a very important theme to see because every single time, except for Moses or Abraham, who left through the south to go to Egypt, but he got punished for that. Every single time you see people, they encounter angels. So when Jacob leaves the land, fleeing from his brother trying to kill him to go to Mesopotamia, he leaves here, and the minute he crosses the Jordan, angels encounter him. And he has a vision of angels coming down the stairway or the, uh, that he sees in his vision. Then when he comes back after 21 years of being with his uncle Laban, he enters the land, he has another vision of angel that the angel begins to wrestle him. 
And so you see this constant encounter with angels as they enter the land. When you get to the book of Joshua, they will enter right through here. Right before they enter the land, Joshua is going to encounter the commander of Yahweh's army, an angel, as he's entering in. And so there's a sense where this is being guarded by angels in the metaphysical world kind of a sense. Um, the only time that you don't see angels appear um, in a very significant sense is when Elijah leaves, but by then God is abandoned. Um, by the time we get to Elijah, God is rejecting Israel, and they're no longer under his protection, and they're beginning to move into the stage where the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come and, and carry him. But even then, Elijah is entering and exiting the land through here, and eventually he lands, exit here, and when he leaves the land, and he's outside the land, just like Moses, he gets fired by God, because he's completely disobeyed God, but you've got to wait for First Kings for that one. So you see this imagery where the, Israel is the garden, and God's desire is to rebuild that garden. And so they will have to move up the eastern side of the Jordan River so that they can enter here because right here is where Jericho is. And when we get to the book of, as in the book of Numbers, they're coming up through Edom and Moab and they'll come here. They'll fight two major battles here on the eastern side of the Jordan River with Sihon and Og, the Amorites. And then they will camp out here. The book of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy takes place right there. And then Joshua begins with them entering into the land and encountering the angel before they enter the land. And so God is creating this typology or this symbol of the Garden of Eden with Israel and the whole idea that this is the Eastern Gate. And most of the time, all throughout the Bible, um, this is the Eastern Gate. When you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of God leaving over through the Jordan River out the Eastern Gate. And then he sees the Babylonians come through the eastern gate, and nothing stops them because God is gone. And then Ezekiel has another vision. That's in chapter 1 and 2. But he has another one in chapter 40 where he sees the glory of God returning again through the eastern gate, which is really interesting because when Jesus comes in the last week of his life to die on the cross, he comes this way through the Jordan River to enter the temple, and that's where he dies because he is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of God's glory returning. But once again, that's foreshadowing big time. But this idea of entering and exiting on the eastern gate is a big theme that keeps going throughout the entire Bible. And so it's important to know that they have to go this way because it has to fit the theology that God is developing and consistency in theology and themes and narrative devices is a big deal to God because that consistency um, clearly communicates a repetitious point um, that we need to get as we better understand how God works. So that's where we come to now in chapter 20, verse 14, is now they're going to ask permission to go through Edom. Now the other thing you need to know is they're only allowed to attack and conquer 10 to 7 nations, depending on how you divide them up, in the land of Canaan. They're the only ones under the judgment of God. Therefore, they're not allowed to attack anybody outside the land because they're not under the judgment of God. So they can't just go through Edom and Moab and just do whatever they want because they don't have permission to do that because Edom and Moab is not under the judgment of God. And when we get to Deuteronomy, God will make it very clear that when you're in Canaan, you can attack anybody that you want but when you're outside of Canaan or somebody from outside of Canaan comes in 
or you go outside of Canaan to attack other people, you're not allowed to do that. The only time you're ever allowed to attack somebody outside of Canaan is if they attack you first. And then you're only allowed to drive them out of your land. And once they've driven out of their land, you're not allowed to attack them anymore. So you're not allowed to begin nor pursue hostilities with foreign nations because they're not under the judgment of God. And the other reason they're not allowed to attack Edom and Moab and the Ammonites is because Edom is the descendants of Esau, and Esau is the brother of Jacob, who are both the sons of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, which means Edom is under the Abrahamic promises as well. He's not a part of the Abrahamic covenant, meaning that he's not the chosen people of God, but he is still reaping the, the blessings of the Abrahamic promises of being a great nation, being blessed with lots of children, because... God made that promise to Abraham, therefore all of Abraham's descendants get that promise, even though not everybody will get the chosen line. And then Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and Lot has two sons by the name of Moab and Ammon, and they become the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites, which means they're relatives. So all three of these nations are distant relatives, and that's another reason why you're not allowed to attack them. And that's the whole point of a lot of the genealogies and Genesis is to teach you who you're allowed to be enemies with and who you're not allowed to be enemies with, basically. I mean, that's a real big nutshell, but that's kind of one of the things. And so God is going to bring them up through the east. And so in verse 14, it says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardships we have experienced, how our ancestors... Um, went down into Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians treated us and our ancestors badly. So when we cried to Yahweh, he heard our voice and sent messengers and has brought us up out of Egypt. Now we are here in Kadesh, a town on the edge of your country. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, nor will we drink water from any well. We will go by the king's highway, and we will not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through the region. So they specifically say we are passing through. We will not take crops, fruit, anything. We're going to travel the king's highway. The king's highway travels up this eastern side of the Jordan. And this is a flat plateau-like region. And this is a major highway in Israel. And by major highway, I don't mean like 71. I just mean a dirt road that lots of people travel. There's another highway that comes from Egypt and travels up the coast of the Mediterranean through Israel and up to Damascus, which is about right there, and then goes to Mesopotamia. And that's called the Way of the Sea. And then there's another highway called the Way of Shur, and the way of Shur comes up right through Hebron and through the middle between the coast and the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, and that's through the hill country. And so these are your three major north and south highways, and then you've got some other ones that go east and west, um, but those are the major ones you travel. Now, the way of the sea is like the business route. That's the route that if you want to get stuck in every single town and get every single donkey light, I don't know, um, <laughs> You go there because that's the way that you go if you want to stay in hotels or inns, which is mostly people's spare bedrooms in the ancient world, or that you actually want to trade with people and do business. That's the way you go. It's not a place that you take large amount of people because this is all coastal farming land, 
and it's not conducive to heavy carts pulling a lot of things and lots of people trampling through. Um, if you want to hit a lot of the major sit, um, like the countryside cities, so this would be like the way of the sea is like going through Los Angeles and New York and Washington DC, the big major booming metropolises. If you go through Hebron, the way of the Shur, that's more like West Virginia, an Appalachian Trail. It's literally a lot of hills, a lot of backwards people, and actually that's who Israel is going to end up being. They're going to be those people. And they're going to go through there. Not that there's anything wrong with those people, just a different lifestyle. They're going to go through there. Now, the King's Highway, most people don't travel. It's desert. It's flat. It's not conducive to you better just stock up on all your supplies because you're not going to be able to trade with anybody. But it's called the King's Highway because that's the highway that the armies take. So it's good, flat, hard land that you can march tons of soldiers and tons of chariots side by side without running into towns, running into people, and you can swiftly move from Mesopotamia to Egypt or back and forth and conquer lots of people. And that's the way they're going because it's on the eastern side and they have to travel there for the theological purposes that God's making and because they are an army that's about ready to attack and enter in. And so that's where they want to travel through Edom and they're asking for permission from Edom. But Edom respond in verse 18 says, You will not pass through me, or I will come out against you with a sword. Then the Israelites said to them, We will go along the highway, and if we and our cattle drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We will only pass through on our own feet without doing anything else. But he said, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful force. So Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Therefore Israel turned away from him. Edom comes out and literally stands on the king's highway and basically says, we're not going to let you through. That means that Israel has to go even further east to go around Edom, deeper into the desert. This is going to risk their survival because the further and further away you get from your water source, the more likely it is that you're going to be dying of thirst or your cattle, your animals, your children, um, older people, all those kinds of things. And so this creates a huge inconvenience for them. But what's the point being made here? The point is this. One, this shows the inhospitability of Edom, their own relatives. It shows you how far Edom has fallen from the idea of who Abraham is because they're not willing to give this to their own relatives. And it shows you this is going to be a foreshadowing of everything that's coming because Edom's going to keep doing this to Israel all throughout their life. And when the Assyrians come and conquer Israel, when Israel is down on the ground beaten up by the Assyrians, Edom's basically going to come up and kick them in the gut while they're lying on the ground. And God is not going to take kindly to that. In fact, the whole book of Obadiah is God's curse against Edom for treating their brother like that. And then the ultimate conclusion of this is Herod the Great is an Edomite. And the way that he's going to treat his brother, Jesus, who is an Israelite. And so this shows the reoccurring theme of how Edom treats their fellow brothers, so to speak. But it also shows this, that despite how inconvenient it is, God doesn't really care because he's not going to allow you to attack them just because they're rude to you. In the ancient world, any other nation would have just attacked and tried to decimate you for being that rude. Yet God says it doesn't matter whether they're rude or not. 
you don't have a right to punish them or attack them or, or get vengeance because they don't deserve judgment in that kind of a sense. So walk around them, go deeper into the desert. If you don't seek vengeance against them like every other nation would, and you are right to me, loving your enemy, then you'll be okay. I'll take care of you. And the same way that I took care of your parents, even when they didn't trust me in the wilderness, I'll take care of you, especially if you trust me. And it shows that they have no right to retaliate on Edom in any kind of a way because God doesn't allow. So is there a reason that Edom wanted to allow them to pass that other than they just wanted to be rude? I mean, is there... Part of the reason probably is, one, everybody is... In the ancient world, you're, you're on your own. There's no military. There's no United States of whatever, United Kingdom. There's, there's no, and people don't work well together. I mean, people don't work well together in America. Um, and we're the same people group. Um, so the reality is, is, yeah, in some ways, people just don't work together. And people are attacking each other all the time. I mean, even America, we violate our treaties with everybody all the time. It's just everybody's too afraid of us, really. Um, on most purposes, that you, you're just kind of on your own. And human nature is horrific during this time period. It is today, too. It's just at least where we've been regulated by a Judeo-Christian morality that has influenced so many, many people here and our laws and our justice system. But without that, we would be horrific as well. I mean, we know it when we watch movies and see people act individually. So the reality is that's part of it. So you don't trust anybody. The other part of it is, is when we get to the book of Joshua, Rahab is going to say, we know what you've done to everybody. We are all scared to death of you and what your God can do. And so Edom knows that they haven't had good relationships with Israel for a long time. And it, it, they didn't even start off good between Jacob and Esau then they might be totally afraid of deception of Israel saying, yeah, 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 we won't do anything to you. And they come in. They know they're on a conquest path. They know they're a military. They know there's a big pillar of fire in the middle of them. And so they might just be completely scared to death. And it's a lot easier to shut your borders down and build a giant wall um, when you're afraid than it is to truly encounter and take risk and be vulnerable to to do that kind of stuff. And rightfully so, most people in the ancient world would betray you. They would deceive you. And when we get to the book of Joshua, we're going to see the Gibeonites do that and other people. So it's just the world that they live in. So yeah, it's probably just mostly fear. So they refuse. So they've gone around Edom, and now they're going to come up on Moab. It's about this time, verse 22, that Aaron dies. So the entire company of the Israelites traveled from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor, and Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom. He said, Aaron will be gathered to his ancestors, for he will not enter into the land I have given, I have given to the Israelites, because both you rebelled against my word at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar and his, his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and remove Aaron's priestly garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron will be gathered to his ancestors and there they will die. So Aaron is dying. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, it's the death of a very prominent figure in the story, multiple stories that we've gone through. Two, deaths are often more memorialized and more remembered than the birth of people. You go to Israel today, they probably they can't tell you where most people were born. And I mean like ancient historical people. 
but they can tell you exactly where Rachel's tomb is and Abraham's tomb and David's coffin. To be buried is actually a greater significant event in the life of the person than to be born. Now, I know that might sound morbid, but it's not. Because the idea is that this is where you're being buried and you're being laid to rest in order to inherit the promises of God, the bigger promises of God. And being buried in the land, remember, we were taken from the land, and the land is the Garden of Eden, and the land is the source of our life, and the land is the ability of God to bless us and us to dwell with God. And so to be going back to the land and be a part of the land is reconnecting with the land, which is the ultimate source of blessings of God. Now, yes, they do get that you're dead, um, but they don't see death in the same way we do in America. In America, we abhor death. We're afraid of death. We don't want to see death. We push as far as we, we can. And the only time we ever watch death is in action movies and violent movies. And, but even then, once the body is dead, we don't, we don't want to deal with that. And so we're very, very, very scared of death in America. As opposed to the ancient world, death was a big part of things. Even the American Indians um, put a lot of effort into their burial grounds. And there was more... Um, theology wrapped up in your burial and going back with the great spirit than there was in birth and life. And that's just a very common thing among ancient people and specifically Eastern people that we've lost in, lost in America. Our individualism and our technology has kind of stripped that bigger sense of being connected to something bigger even beyond this life. That's huge for them. The other reason is that this reminds you why Aaron's not allowed in the promised land reminds you that God is honoring this. And remember, every single person from that generation is not dead is them not being able to enter the promised land. With every person that dies in that generation is one step closer to the promised land. And so with Aaron's death, we're one more step out of the judgment of God and the opportunity into the promised land. And so this story is here for those specific reasons and then some as well. So God says, so, so to be gathered with your ancestors literally means that. In the ancient world, um, especially when it gets into the promised land, the way that they would bury people is that the Jews would lay your body out on a stone like they did with Jesus, and they would wrap you up, but they would not embalm you like the Egyptians would. They would just lay your body out, and they would allow your flesh to rot off your body in the next year or so until eventually there was nothing left on your bones and you were just a skeleton and then the sun bleached your skeleton bones and then they would gather you up literally and your bones and they would break all your bones down and they would lay your legs and your arms in a box called an ossuary. An ossuary was a little stone coffin and they would wash your bones too. It was a huge ceremony. They would wash your bones and they would lay your legs and your arms in the coffin. The coffin was the size of your femur, okay, from hip to the knee bone. That was how big the coffin was and length. And they would lay you in there, and then they would lay your, lay your pelvis bone on that, and then they would lay your skull on that, and then your rib cage in between those. And they would put you in that, and they would put a lid on, and they would stick you in a little, like, cubby hole inside of a family tomb. And that's how they buried you, and that's how they commemorated you. And you can still see a lot of those to this day in Israel. Ossuaries are a lot of places. If you ever saw the movie Schindler's List, at the very end, they fast forward to present day, 
and Schindler is actually buried, not buried, but his ossuary is on the side of the Mount of Olives in the midst of like thousands upon thousands of ossuaries. At the end, you see all these people walking up to them and putting a rock on it in the same way that we would put flowers on a coffin to honor it. And so the more rocks that a coffin has, the more that they're being honored by people. And you can go to Israel this day and you can see them all. You can see Schindler's ossuary. It's still there. And that's the way they did it. And so what they would do then, a rich family would have their own tomb and they would put each member in a different cubbyhole where a poor family would have its own ossuary and the ossuary would be a little bit bigger in width and height and they would reopen it back up and add you to your ancestors. So your bones would all start mixing up with all your previous ancestors. And especially in these communities, even though Abraham and Isaac and all of them are incredibly wealthy, they are nomadic people. And so when it says that you're going to be gathered together with your ancestors, it means that very literally. So they would lay your body out. It would decompose. They would gather your bones up, open up Abraham's casket, throw Jacob in, Isaac in. They would open it up again and throw the sons in. And after you get it, once you break out bigger and bigger, more families, less likely that would happen. But you would most likely not be in your own ossuary all by yourself. Because remember, even in death, it's community. Even in death, it's community. And, that's, and it's huge. Once again, the skeleton was not a symbol of death or horror or Halloween to them. And just like it is when you go to Spain and that kind of stuff or Mexico, it's, it's, it's your body. It's just as much you as anything else. And they probably have a much more healthy perspective on the human skeleton created by God as your body than we do today to turn it into a horror image or whatever. And so Aaron's going to be gathered together with his forefathers. But God says before he dies, take the priestly garments off of Aaron and put them on his son Eleazar as a transition in power of the priesthood. So verse 27, so Moses did as Yahweh commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. And Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron died there on top of the mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the community saw Aaron was dead, the whole house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. That's a typical mourning period. 30 days, all life would come to a halt. I mean, you would still farm or take care of animals to a certain extent, um, but trade, business, ceremonial stuff come to a halt. They do it on the mountain so everybody can see it. So this would be like the presidential inauguration and swearing him in, that everybody would be there to watch it. This is a big deal. This is the, they don't have a king. They don't have a judge or a leader, really. Moses is it, but they haven't encountered anything like that yet because Moses hasn't died. So this is the biggest thing for them of a transition from power to another power, and everybody is there to watch it. Also, this is how I want to die. <laughs> Have you ever noticed in the Bible, like, Abraham is like, I'm about ready to die. And then he blesses his sons, and it just he closes his eyes, and he dies. And Isaac does the same thing, and Jacob does the same thing. And Aaron's like, God's like, it's time for you to die. And Aaron goes up to the hill and gives it to his son. And I don't know whether he just laid down the grass or what, but then he just dies. Like, how cool would that be just to know that this is your time? You, you fulfilled everything that you are to do, and, and God is saying that it's it, and you're so in tune with him that you know that. 
and you just kind of go lay down in your couch or your bed and you close your eyes and it's it's over with and i just i don't know what to do with that like i know this could have been everybody in the ancient world experiences there is something to them but like is that something that was only for these specific huge spiritual leaders that they were so in tune with god in some kind of way or is that something that you can have even today with a, an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. I mean, in, I mean, in some cases, people did die violently in the ancient world, and even prominent people died violently, and a lot of the prophets died violently. Um, they were executed by their own people. So this doesn't mean if you're spiritual, you get to die this way, and if you're not spiritual, you don't get to die that way, because <laughs> that would completely disregard all the prophets who were completely massacred, and all the disciples were completely massacred. Um, but I just... I just, that's a question I have, like, why did they get to experience this? And, like, maybe the prophets don't. And what is there with that, um, that they just know that and other people in the Bible don't know that? And even David just says, I'm, I'm about ready to die. And he closes his eyes and it's done and over with. And so I just think that's a really interesting thing that keeps occurring over and over again, even though it's not a rule that is passed out for every single person, even if they're spiritual and godly. But I've always just been fascinated by that.